0: Welcome to an NPC episode of It's All Relative. It's been a while, no? Just to recap, an NPC is a non-playing character in a game. And it's not uncommon for gamers to abuse these characters because it doesn't affect the outcome of the game. NPC episodes are about people who have been treated like NPCs in their own life. This NPC episode is about a 19-year-old woman who, on January 8, 1937, was found dead and mutilated in a ditch in the badlands of Peking, China. Before we get into this tale, remember, this is a true crime podcast, so find another thing to do if anything about crime makes you squeamish. I will start this story with some Jimmy Greer and Pinky Tomlin, and I will see you on the other side.
1: My affection can change my complexion from white to rosy red. Oh, anytime she holds my hand and tells me that she's mine. There are many girls who can thrill me and some who can chill me, but I'll just hang around. Oh, and keep acting like a clown until she says she's mine. Now I'm not afraid that she'll leave me. No, because she's not that kind who takes a dare. But instead, I trust her implicitly. She can go where she wants to go, do what she wants to do, and I sure won't care. Cause the object of my affection can change my complexion from white to rosy red.
0: China has never, really, had a welcoming attitude to foreigners. It seems like every time the country opens up a bit more to the outside world, there is a huge backlash and it closes things off again. China allowed outside traders to operate with a hate-love attitude. The official line was that China needed nothing from the outside world. In practice, China needed or simply wanted the money that came from the export of tea and opium. Also, in practice... China was only able to produce everything a population needs to survive if it maintained its borders where they now sit. But China, like most of the countries of any size in the world, had trouble maintaining that border. In the 1860s, China had been forced to open their ports not only to allow foreigners to come and go, but also to allow foreigners to live in these ports. About 30 years later, The boxers, so-called because they practiced Chinese boxing, now referred to as martial arts, started a war in part because they didn't want the foreigners to have so much freedom in and access to China. That rebellion was put down, but by the 1930s, China was actually in pieces, having been broken into territories by various warlords and the Japanese. Foreigners still held their places in various cities, most of those living in walled-off areas known as legation districts. A legation is essentially a diplomat or consul, except legation districts did not, as such, separate the different legates. Although various legates tended to hold their operations in one particular building or another, the whole district was a bit of a hodgepodge, with Japanese, American, English, French all mingled and living together. Peking had been the capital of China, but was abandoned as such in 1927 or 28. It's not completely clear. So many of the things a Westerner thinks of as infamous are in Peking. The Forbidden City, Tiananmen Square. The Legation District was mostly segregated from the rest of Peking. If Chinese people came into work, they would have to check in and check out again. And non-Chinese did leave the district, but not usually to participate in Chinese society. All this is to convey the idea that the Legation District was in an area in China, but not particularly of China. Pamela Warner was of European descent, but she was born and grew up in China. Her biological parentage is unknown, but from her dark blonde hair and gray eyes, most people assumed she was a white Russian. Quick note on white Russians. Russia is a country often at war. The First World War resulted in the Communists taking control of the country and renaming it Sovietsky Soyuz Raspublika. This is where the SSR in USSR comes from. The key here is that the Communists were the Red Party. Those who opposed the Red Party called themselves the White Party, or more commonly, White Russians. And you Russologists, calm down. I know it's much more complicated than that, but this is not the place for that discussion. Feel free to start a thread on the Patreon feed, or better yet, Reddit. The important thing here is that many, many white Russians fled when the Reds took power, and many who fled ended up in China. Being a foreigner in China is hard enough without having a trade or skill of some kind to give you money and a place in society. Men often worked in various underhanded professions, and the women tended to work in the sex trade. Again, really complicated, also not the place to pick this apart. Don't come for me. The result of all this was that there tended to be a lot of Russian babies in orphanages in China. And even though there was no information on Pamela's biological parents, all signs point to Russian emigres. In 1919, an English couple, the Werners, adopted a little girl and named her Pamela. No one knew her actual date of birth, but the birth certificate issued by the British legation lists February 7, 1917. Pamela's mother was called Gladys Nina Ravenshaw. Gladys' father had been employed by the East India Company. And if you do not know about the East India Company, this was a huge and powerful company originating in England, on the level with Amazon today. The East India Company did import-export at a time when England was a huge world power. Again, this is not the time or place to discuss the East India Company, but it has a very, very gray history. Gladys' father had a position in the company that required him to travel and, for various lengths of time, live in other countries. When her father was assigned to a new post, the whole family went with him. Again, not to get too far off on a tangent, but this was not completely normal for the time. Men did bring their wives and families, but it would not be unusual for the family to be left behind. Particularly making this unusual is the size of the Ravenshaw family. Gladys had many siblings. Taking the whole family would have been cumbersome. Mr. Ravenshaw, traveling the world with his brood in tow, marked him out from the crowd. He was a family man, and this would tend to indicate that Gladys had an involved and loving father. And because of this world travel, Gladys was equally as familiar with Sussex as with India. She loved sports, horses, and being outside. However, this did not stop her also learning several languages, along with the violin and the piano. When Gladys was 23, her family were living in Sussex. The fad at the time for upper-class women was an interest in something called theosophy. Theosophy is one of many belief systems begun in 19th century America, which most people now would classify as New Age. There is nothing to say whether Gladys did or did not believe in theosophy, just that she'd shown an interest. And one night, at a public lecture, she met a man named Edward Warner. Born in 1864, Werner was more than 20 years older than Gladys. Like Gladys, Edward Theodore Chalmers Werner has spent his childhood in a fairly well-to-do family, and his father loved to travel. The family finally settled in England, where Werner went to school in Kent. And, just an aside, Werner is often referred to as ETC for his initials, but I find this rather ridiculous, so I will not be doing that. Edward was a rather bookish person and he found the school in Kent unpleasant because its focus was on sports, not academics. Once his education was complete, Warner became an interpreter in China, and he discovered that China fascinated him. He did what he could to remain living there. At the time of the Theosophy Lecture, Warner had returned to England to visit his aging mother. A professed atheist, Warner was interested in Theosophy on an intellectual basis only. Opposites attract, is how the saying goes, Gladys was outgoing, loved sports, and socializing. Edward was bookish, somewhat of a loner, and 20-some-odd years her senior. In addition to a possible personality clash, Werner and Gladys had to communicate by snail mail, a term which could not be more apt in this situation. Quite soon after that lecture, Werner went back to China. That would be about 8,800 miles from Gladys. Whatever they had to communicate about is a bit of a mystery although Werner was never want for words in a letter, a fact which later will become painfully aware to most every official in England. Shortly, Gladys made the trek to China, and the two were married in Hong Kong in 1911. If I've done my math correctly, and believe me, it is difficult to get things straight in this case, it appears Gladys was 24 when they married. She was 23 when they met. They supposedly communicated by mail, but the distance could only make those letters move at a relative snail's pace. What I'm getting at is this question. How much can they really have known each other at this point? Granted, a true knowledge of another person was not a requirement for marriage in the Edwardian era. It's not even a requirement now. There is a case to be made that full knowledge of another person is not likely to occur at all, like, ever. However, a lack of understanding one another may explain some of what happened next. Edward became ferociously jealous of pretty much every man in the Fu Chao Legate, whether warranted or not. He actually attacked a few of these men, took after them with a riding crop. I am also guessing that Gladys discovered this side of Werner fairly quickly. I feel like the poor woman was catfished. When Gladys arrived in China, it was jealousy that set Werner off but even prior to that, Warner was actually known for being difficult and had flat-out had his sanity questioned. In fact, it was these last jealous rages that allowed the British Foreign Office to forcibly retire him. I'm pretty sure he hid this side in his letters to Gladys. Of course, Warner was incensed at being put out to pasture, and a flurry of paper was exchanged. From Warner's side, it was all about how he had done nothing wrong. From the Foreign Office's side, they diplomatically stated that they didn't give a monkey's, and he was done. Werner was almost immediately sent back to England to await confirmation of his pension. He was 49. Gladys had not even been in China for two years. When his pension was confirmed, the Werners tried to return to China, despite the First World War going on. The war does slow them down, but they still made it to Peking in 1915. Gladys grew up in a variety of societies and cultures, so she probably adapted fairly quickly. The benefit of Warner's British pension living in China was that money went a lot farther than it would in England. They could afford amenities and servants that they would not otherwise have had. Money, however, isn't everything, and Gladys doesn't take long to become a shadow of herself. About 15-odd years later, Warner writes a book called Autumn Leaves, in which he talks about his wife. In it, he says that her health had been delicate and she had some sort of heart condition her whole life. However, those who knew her, particularly those pre-Warner, said he was nuts. No way the woman who played polo, was actively social, spoke several languages, and played multiple instruments, had a delicate constitution, or anything wrong with her heart. And I have to agree with them. In any event, something happened to this vibrant woman, and it started about the time she arrived in China to marry Werner. It could be that she was now trapped with this disturbed man. It could be that Warner actually resorted to poisoning her, possibly to ensure that Gladys didn't have the energy to go out and be somewhere without him. It could be that she contracted some sort of a disease and that her system was not able to fight it off. But people of the legation commented that she became almost a different person. It was like the life was being sucked out of her. Gladys did consult many doctors, including her brother-in-law, but none could adequately diagnose or treat her. In the midst of this, and for no reason given, the Warners felt the need to adopt a child. Into this relationship of opposites, with a fading mother and an increasingly mercurial father, came little Pamela, only two years old. Warner was busy with his nose in a book, and Gladys was too tired to do much except let the ama, because of course they had a governess, take over the job of raising Pamela. Two years after the adoption, Gladys was off to New York to get specialist treatment for her unnamed conditions and when she finally returned, she did seem to have improved. More evidence that the problem was environmental. The what or how are never to be known. Upon returning to Peking, she quickly got the flu, and then meningitis, and finally died in February of 1922. She was 35. The official inquest listed her death as caused by varinol. Varinol is a barbiturate which was used as a sleep aid, but it became known in the upper classes for its overdoses, both accidental and deliberate. veronal could easily account for her ongoing malaise. If she were using the drug regularly, it could easily have made her listless. There's nothing to indicate she was or that she wasn't using veronal regularly, and if she was, that it was being used by choice. All reports suggest that Warner was in deep grief and lost without Gladys. This doesn't mean he didn't poison her, but it doesn't mean he did either. Whatever the cause, the end result was that Gladys was dead. Warner retreated further into his research, and Pamela was raised by the Chinese servants. Having been foisted from his legate responsibilities, Warner did something that few foreigners did. He bought a home outside the walls of the legation quarter. Warner held an attachment to China. While working under the auspices of the foreign office, he was required to live within the quarter, He and Gladys spent those last two years of his employment living in the consul. But the legation quarter was constructed by foreigners, mostly Westerners. The buildings, the homes, the streets, the way people dressed, the food they ate, was all done in the style of the West. No longer required to remain inside the walls, Werner took his predilection one step further. He bought a Chinese house in a Chinese neighborhood with Chinese servants. He was close enough to the legation quarter to easily keep contact with the British consul. I'd say he went native, but Werner could not bring himself to go that far. For him, it was the study of China that interested him. And he could do that more easily living in China. But for him, it was only study. Werner never lost sight of the fact that he was an Englishman. Pamela was a different story. After looking at what little information there is about her, I get the impression that Pamela was a great deal like her mum. DNA be damned. Pamela was born in China, and like most children of immigrants, she molded to the country like her parents never could. Pamela spoke English and Chinese fluently. I'm assuming this is Mandarin, but all the sources just say Chinese. She rode her bicycle all over Peking like she owned the place. She did dress in a more Western way, but she did have some Eastern-style clothing that she would wear when she thought she could get away with it. The one thing that marked her as solidly of China was that she ate the food. Eating Chinese food, or any foreign food, was not just something a proper Brit should do. This attitude has changed so much in the last 100 years, but at the time, it was definitely frowned upon. A perfect satirized example is D.I. Richard Poole in the UK series Death in Paradise. If you haven't seen this show, you are seriously missing out. Richard Poole is a caricature of an Englishman abroad as satire. Death in Paradise is set on a fictional island in the Caribbean. D.I. Neville Parker, in the most recent episodes, is also a great example, but in Neville's case, he actually has gone a bit native. He still wants his chicken and chips for supper, though. Once Pamela was old enough, she was sent off to school. These were all Western-style boarding schools, and Pamela got kicked out of them all. She would speak her mind and talk back to the instructors. She also loved sports, but these schools had an academic focus. There are strangely no writings about any of this, particularly considering Werner's penchant for shooting off his literary mouth. Perhaps these do exist, but did not survive the Second World War. That, too, we will discuss at a later time. In any event, Werner enrolled Pamela in what he saw as the last option, the Tianjin Grammar School, a very traditional British school that had also a fairly good sports selection. There is nothing to say whether she liked it or not, other than her attitude. There were no complaints by the school, no threats to kick her out. People who knew her there thought she was a bit quiet, but loved sports, and her grades were good. She had also gained a boyfriend. In fact, Pamela was very attractive. She was also older than most schoolgirls, possibly due to the many times she had to start over. She was 18 when she went off to the grammar school, and many boys and men alike paid attention to her. As with Gladys, Werner did not like that attention. In my opinion, he blew quite a bit out of proportion, including perpetrating more physical attacks against her supposed suitors. He claimed that several men who had come in contact with Pamela had acted inappropriately. This included her headmaster and one of her friend's father. Let me be clear, I am not saying this didn't happen. Like I said, Pamela was beautiful and for all intents and purposes, she was an adult woman. There's just nothing unequivocal to indicate that all of these men were after her. And we have to include Warner's propensity to act insane in any interpretation of these events. So, it is the Christmas holidays, 1936, and Pamela is home in Peking. Quote from Midnight in Peking. Her return home for the Christmas holidays had been a fraught time, according to the local gossip. The servants reported arguments, shouting, even a fight between Warner and one of Pamela's suitors on the street outside in the courtyard. She had been dating men, going out for tiffins, dinner, dancing, late nights. Werner hadn't been happy about her new social life. He was old school and saw it as all too modern. He'd been particularly concerned about one suitor, a half-Chinese, half-Portuguese man called, oddly, John O'Brien, who had become obsessed with Pamela and Tiansen and apparently proposed to her. This man was now living in Peking. Pamela had rejected him, but the whole affair worried her father. Then he'd taken against a Chinese student who called for her several times. The gossip was that Werner told him to go away and stop bothering Pamela. And it has escalated into a fight out in the armor factory alley, a spectacle witnessed by the neighbors. Werner, in his 70s, had wrapped the boy across the face with his cane, breaking his nose, end quote. Okay, so first, a half-Chinese, half-Portuguese man named John O'Brien? I want to know more about that guy. And second, I don't know quite where to start with that last excerpt. From a cultural hierarchy point of view, Warner is well within his rights to act, even violently, towards who he sees as unfit suitors. And Warner was a gentleman by right, if not by personality. She is a female living under Warner's auspices, so there is an homage to be paid, particularly in light of her position in the English hierarchy. In other words, like it or not, in 1930s English society, women, no matter their age, had to kowtow to men. Pamela, however, is just a few months shy of 20 years old. She has been raised, not by the English, but by the Chinese, who always treated her as Memsab, and yes, I'm aware that is not Chinese, Sumi. Pamela has always been treated like she was in charge. Being booted from all the best schools for her lip indicates that, as does her going wherever she wanted, unaccompanied, on her bicycle. Her diary also suggests that she saw the world as the dominant in any situation. More on her diary later. One of the investigators on her case said that he discovered two Pamelas. I think Pamela was an amiable person, but when someone said or did something she didn't agree with, she would not let that stand, even if she got in trouble for it or it put her in danger. Quoting again from Midnight in Peking, On the final afternoon of her life, after her father had gone out for his walk and she had finished writing her letters, Pamela donned her heavy overcoat and woolen mittens and pushed her straw fair hair up into a beret. She took her ice skates and her bicycle and told Ho Ying, the household's cook, who'd known her since she was a baby, that she'd be back by 7.30. She said she would like meatballs and rice for dinner, and Ho Ying said he'd be sure to go to the nearby Tongtan Paolao Tong to see the butcher. Pamela left through the courtyard's moon gate and cycled off along Armor Factory Alley to meet a friend for tea. Ethel Gurevich was from a white Russian family who had been living in Peking for five years. At 15, she was younger than Pamela, but the two had gone to the same school until Werner enrolled his daughter at Tientsin Grammar. The girls had run into each other the day before at the skating rink, where they caught up on news about school, their lives, and mutual friends. Agreeing to meet again the following afternoon, they had arranged to meet outside the Grand Hotel de Vagondy at 5 o'clock. Ethel arrived a couple of minutes past the hour, and Pamela turned up a few minutes later. They walked their bicycles round the corner to the Gurevich family home on a Hong Kong bank road, where they had tea with Ethel's mother and father, who also knew Pamela. Around six o'clock, the girls headed over to the rink. They skated together for an hour or so, wrapped up warmly under the bright arc lights the club had set up. A mutual friend, Lillian Marinovsky, another white Russian girl who had been at school with Pamela, was there too. At seven o'clock, Pamela said she had to go home. She told Ethel and Lillian that she'd promised her father she would be back by half-past seven, and she knew he would worry if she was late. He was an old man, a worrier, a rather traditional father. It had been dark by seven, and it was freezing cold with a bitter, bone-chilling wind blowing through the blackened-out streets at the edge of the legation quarter. The girls stood around the coal braziers that had been set up by the rink to warm the skaters. But aren't you afraid to ride home alone? Ethel asked Pamela. While Lillian wanted to know if she was scared of the dark. They both lived nearby, within the quarter, and were staying out later than normal on account of it being Russian Christmas. But Pamela would have to ride a mile or so outside the quarter to reach Farmer Factory Alley, skirting the notorious badlands by riding along the Tartar Wall. And she'd been riding through the Tartar City in the dark, down unlit hutong, with not even the moonlight to help. From the Tartar City, looking back into the Legation Quarter, the only landmarks at night were the spindly spires of Saint Michael's Church, the lights in the upper windows of the Vagonee and the Hôtel du Nord, and the black frame of the radio tower at the American legation. Pamela made what would later be considered an odd reply, one that was endlessly reported in Moldover for what it might have meant. I have been alone all my life, she told her friends. I am afraid of nothing, nothing, and besides, Peking is the safest city in the world. And with that, she left her two friends to retrieve her bicycle. It was the last they saw of her, waving goodbye as she disappeared into the darkness of that bitter January night. When daylight broke on another freezing day, the tower was deserted once more. It was an old man named Chang Po Chen who reported the body of Pamela Werner, one of the Liaobexing, literally Old Hundred Names, the working people of Peking. Chang was now retired and lived in a hutang not far from the Fox Tower. On that cold morning of Friday, 8th of January, he was taking his prized songbird for a walk along the Tartar Wall when he saw the corpse. Caged songbirds were an ancient Peking tradition, and every morning old men like Chang could be seen carrying lacquered wooden cages, draped with blue linen covers. All Pekingers, Chinese and foreign, recognized the distinctive sound of these swallows, which were let out of their cages with flutes attached to their tails to go whistling through the morning air, soaring across the Hutong, the Forbidden City, and the Fox Tower before faithfully returning to their masters. Chang came to the Tartar Wall every day to smoke, drink tea, and talk songbirds. The cold didn't deter him, nor the strong, bone-chilling winds. He was a Pekinger, born and bred, and he was used to it. That morning, shortly after eight o'clock, he was following the Tartar Wall eastwards to the Fox Tower when he noticed two rickshaw pullers squatting below, pointing across the wasteland toward the rubbish-strewn moat at the base of the tower. It was the body of a young woman, lying at an odd angle and covered by a layer of frost. Her clothing was disheveled, her body badly mutilated, on her wrist was an expensive watch, that had stopped just after midnight it was the morning after the russian christmas which was thirteen days after the western christmas by the old julian calendar and the corpse belonged to nineteen-year-old pamela werner there was no doubting that the woman he had found at the base of the Fox Tower was dead and not just any woman but a foreigner a Lawai. moreover she had been terribly mutilated beaten cut and sliced all over her body was this another suicide it didn't look like it and whatever it was it wasn't good with his caged songbird, Old Chang ran back along the tartar wall to the nearest police box and the aged legs would carry him, End quote. Before we delve any further, can we talk about the guy taking his bird for a walk? Just that image in my mind is a bit fantastic. Kinda love it. If I decide to go full-on eccentric in my old age, mark me down for taking my bird for a walk. Just me and Petey, nothing to see here. Now, we only have a little time left for today, and there is a lot left to go over. A lot to unpack just about where and how Pamela's body was found. What I do want to cover today is that the dead bodies in Peking were not an uncommon occurrence. Dead bodies in winter were particularly not uncommon, and European dead bodies even more likely to appear than Chinese. Winter brought unfavorable weather conditions, so death from the elements is an obvious factor. Christmas, and especially Russian Christmas, could also bring out the model in expat and precipitate suicide. The area where Pamela's body was found is known as the Badlands. It's a buffer zone, known as a glacis, between the Chinese and legate parts of Peking. It is a liminal, nowhere strip of land where bars, brothels, and other blue businesses ply their trade. Why was her body left there? Good question. Pamela herself was a liminal Not completely Chinese, yet not completely English. There has also been a suggestion that it was an attempt to hide the body, referencing the ditch she was in. However, the surviving photo of the crime scene does not indicate a very deep ditch. I find it difficult to believe it would have concealed anything. Conjecture is all we really have anymore, and none of that conjecture is very plausible. In the next episode, we will go over more of the details of the crime, lay out the so-called suspects, and talk about the two recently-ish published books which have revived the interest in the case. If you like what you've heard today, please like, rate, and review the podcast on whatever platform you are using. I am linking the Patreon in the show notes. Please tell a friend or two to give a listen. Any constructive comments, you can use the Patreon wall or contact me on most of the things at Dispecta or a variant thereof. I will send you on your way with Glenn Miller and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relatives.